thoughts tonight. I want you to turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter number 3, and I want to look at a couple of verses that I hopefully will introduce what I'm going to talk about and get us on the on the right track. You know, as, I, as I've said several times during the course of this study, that this study does not have to do with preaching uh, from the Bible, but rather uh, speaking about the Bible. And I, you know, I'm anxious to get back to normal preaching where we, where I take a text and and try expound on that. Uh, but there's important issues, that, you know, as a church that we need to talk about. Uh, it's just I feel like it's absolutely essential, and and this is one of them. And uh, tonight I want to speak to you about the development of the Bible or as uh, a title I've used before in this regard is the wonder of the Bible's formation. Let me show you why this is so important. Second Timothy chapter number three. Paul is speaking about the marks of the latter days and how our society will be. And we'll come down to verse 13 and he says, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. And notice this next statement, deceiving and being deceived. You see, they're deceived and uh, and they're deceiving others. But, y- you know, how is it that they could be deceived? And, you know, how is it that people are deceived today? Well, it- it's due to the fact they have not a knowledge of the truth. And, of course, the Bible is the truth. And so he says, in light of that fact, he says, Timothy, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and has been assured of, of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So in light of the, of, of the, of the times and the situation, the conditions, he is kind of in a roundabout way saying, Timothy, make sure you stick with the word, you know, and we've got to be certain that we do. But the fact of the matter is we need to we need to make sure we have the word of God. And we're going to really the next two weeks after this bear down on some things that uh, that I think will be of great importance and in some way more of an interest to some of you tonight because this is kind of more of a lesson in history, but it's a very important lesson and uh, some things we need to think about. Some folks are really surprised that we don't have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible. Nobody does anywhere. They do not exist, as far as we know, anywhere on this earth. And that surprises people, but it need not alarm us because we can still be assured of the fact that we do have the Word of God. And that's why, that's why we're taking this time tonight to, to trace the history or the development of the Bible. Over a period of about 1,500 years, God used about 40 different men to record the Bible. Among those men, there were kings, there were scholars, there were prophets, there were fishermen, scribes, soldiers, 
and a herdsman, a tax collector, and even a physician. And so you can see that God used different men from different countries under different circumstances to write the Bible. And the amazing thing about it is that the Bible has a common theme and perfect unity. Those writers didn't consult with one another. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, God led me to write on this subject here, and, you know, I want to check my notes with what you're writing. I want to make sure that, you know, we don't clash some way or another. They didn't even know what the other person was writing. In fact, sometimes it was years and years and years later when the, you know, other book of the Bible was written. They had no knowledge of that, and yet God put it all together, and boy, if it says anything to us about the Bible, it's the fact that it has nothing to do with the ability or the wisdom of man. It's all the work of God. From the very beginning, God has spoke to man. And we could spend an hour talking about this. We'd go all the way back to Genesis and, you know, in chapter number one where God spoke to Adam we could turn to chapter 4 of the book of Genesis where God spoke to Cain. Then we could, you know, look and see where God spoke to, uh, to Noah there in chapter number 6. Just before the flood, He speaks to Noah and gives him instructions. Then He speaks to Abraham and lays out His plan of bringing a nation into existence. And throughout the Old Testament, God spoke directly to certain men through dreams and through visions and, 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 and so forth. But not only did God speak to men, God has spoken through men also. Because these men were known as prophets. All of the writers in some way or another were identified as prophets. And a prophet was, has, you know, been called a mouthpiece through which God spoke to others. In other words, their message was received by divine revelation. It was delivered with divine authority. They, you know, they didn't select a subject and think, okay, God has chosen me to write one of the four Gospels of the Bible, and so I'm going to do my research, and I'm going to study and compare notes, and I'm going to write about the life of Christ uh, you know, it was by divine revelation that God, through the Holy Spirit, said, write this and write that. And, and it, it, it was with divine authority that they wrote. In, in other words, whenever they wrote these things that God had given to them to give to us, it's as though God was speaking in an audible voice to all of us because it is the Word of God. And we've already talked about that. So... These men recorded certain messages as they were directed by the Lord, and that gave us the Old Testament. And so let's talk a little while about the Old Testament. It was written by Jews as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They recorded their messages in Hebrew, except for certain segments in Ezra and Daniel and, and just a little bit in the book of Jeremiah that was in Aramaic, but... But other than that, the Old Testament was given originally in the Hebrew language. The messages were preserved, written on parchment or vellum, and, and were called the oracles of God. You find that term over in Romans chapter 3 and verse 2, the oracles of God. It means the writings 
of God. And, and these writings of God were given to the nation of Israel who was to serve as the custodian for these sacred writings. That was their responsibility to take care of these writings. Remember, whenever originally God spoke to Abraham and spoke about from his loins bringing out a great and a mighty nation, and he made it perfectly clear that that nation was to be his representative among all the other nations of the earth. And so they had an authority the other nations did not have. That that doesn't mean God loved the Jews more than he loved anybody else. It doesn't mean the Jews were more perfect than anybody else. It just simply means that God had a particular plan for the Jewish people and a part of their work was to preserve the writings that God had given. And, and whether it was a king like David or Solomon, maybe a statesman like Daniel or whoever it was, these prophets were spokesmen for God and their writings were preserved and, and then added to, you know, to their predecessors. In Deuteronomy, it tells us that Moses, uh, let me just, let me just read this section because I think it's noteworthy. Chapter 10 of Deuteronomy says in verse 1, at that time the Lord said unto me, hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first and come up unto me into the mount and make thee an ark of, of, of wood, and I will write on the tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest, and thou shalt put them in the ark. Now remember, the ark of the covenant was a little box that went inside the holy of holies in the tabernacle later on in the temple, and that ark represented the presence, the glory of God. In other words, you could say the entire tabernacle or temple was built for the specific purpose of housing that ark. And the word of God was placed within that ark. Well, Joshua comes along and, and Joshua adds to the work that God had given him to do. As God gives Joshua revelations, he adds to that work. So now we have the writings of Moses and the writings of Joshua. Then Samuel comes along and Samuel does the same thing. And, and if you look over in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 13 and verse number 9, he indicates that there was an official register of the prophet's writings. So it shows us the formation of the Old Testament as these writings were were put together. And, and it was the job of the scribes to take care of these manuscripts. That was their responsibility. They were appointed as the caretaker of all of these manuscripts. And it is impossible for us to overestimate the value of those people called scribes. Their particular work seemed to have started when the Jews returned from captivity, and it was their responsibility, number one, to judge and to keep public records also. So they copied the sacred writings and destroyed the scrolls that were badly worn or they were soiled or they had been damaged in some way. And so it was their job to make copies of these, and, and it was in their meticulous care of copying these, these manuscripts that we can be certain that they were accurately transmitted from one generation to another. Several years ago, and I'm so blessed 
to have had some friends over the years that that God has used in, in mighty ways and unusual ways. And many years ago, I met a man by the name of Jewel Smith. Uh, I had Jewel to come. He's in heaven now, but I had him to come, and he had uh, a Bible collection, and he came and brought a part of that Bible collection when we were located over on Bender Road. And I think I'm safe in saying he had a Bible collection unlike anything else in all of the world. Uh, you know, there are bigger collections and so forth, but but they did not include the particular manuscripts and things that he had. And so he lectured. He was an expert in this area. He devoted his life to the study of the development of the Bible, and he lectured on that. And some of the things that he shared with us was this. He pointed out that it took 50 lambskins to record the first five books of the Bible and 200 lambskins for the entire Old Testament. That is, if they made no mistakes. Think about that. He says it took 15 years just to copy the first five books of the Bible. The scribes began their training, he said, at the early age of five, but they were not allowed to enter into their work until they were 21 years old. So from the age of five to 21, all they did was study and prepare for the work of copying these manuscripts. And usually three scribes worked together, and here's what they did. They counted every letter finding the middle letter of a section and count back and then forward and from forward to back. One scribe, he said, would call out a letter and one would write the letter down. The other scribe would check the letter. And when they came to the name of God, they stopped, took a bath, broke the pen, threw it away, and resumed their writing with a new pen. If they made a mistake, they would burn the lambskin and get another and start all over. They didn't use any whiteout back then. <laughs> and they didn't just mark through something, oops, a mistake, you know. They didn't even say, okay, that page was run. They threw the whole thing away and started all over again. In his book, General Introduction, a biblical introduction, a man by the name of A.H.S. Miller wrote eight rules that are mentioned in the Talmud. Now, the Talmud was the collection of the Jewish law and their traditions. And uh, in the Talmud, it gives these eight, these eight rules by which uh, the, the scribes operated. Number one, the parchment must be made from the skin of clean animals, must be prepared by a Jew only, and, uh, and the skins must be fastened together by strings taken from clean animals. So, you know, they were very, you know, particular about this because they wasn't going to use the skin of an animal that wasn't deemed clean, you know, according to the old Levitical laws that God had given, you know, concerning the diet and what have you. They figured if it wasn't, you know, if you 
couldn't eat an animal because it was unclean, well, you couldn't use the skin to record the Word of God on. So that's the rule they followed. Number two, each column must have no less than 48 nor more than 60 lines, and the entire copy must be first line. Number three, the ink must be of no other color than black and must be prepared according to a special recipe. Number four, no word nor letter could be written from memory. The scribe must have an authentic copy before him, and he must read and pronounce aloud each word before writing it. Number five, he must reverently wipe his pen each time before writing the word for God and must wash his whole body before writing the name Jehovah, lest the holy name be contaminated. Number six, strict rules were given concerning forms of the letters, spaces between letters, words, and sections, the use of the pen, the color of the parchment, etc., Number seven, the revision of a row must be made within 30 days after the work was finished. Otherwise, it was worthless. One mistake on a sheet condemned the sheet. If three mistakes were found on any page, the entire manuscript was condemned. Number eight, every word in every letter was counted. And if a letter was omit or omitted, an extra letter inserted, or if one letter touched another, the manuscript was condemned and destroyed at once. And then he makes this statement, quote, Some of these rules may appear extreme and absurd, yet they show how sacred the Word of God of the Old Testament was to its custodians, the Jews, and they give us strong encouragement to believe that we have the real Old Testament, the same one which our Lord had, which was originally given by inspiration of God. Now, you know, I know it's not, this isn't the, the, an enjoyable kind of message where you're reading quotes from men that are long since dead and gone, but what they said is so important that, that we need to, we need to understand that the Bible's not something that, you know, was just put together by man, but something that was God given and then very, very, very carefully copied Throughout the years, Benjamin Wilkinson wrote, By the time of Christ, the Old Testament was in a settled condition. Since then, the Hebrew Scriptures had been carried down intact to the day of printing, about 1450 A.D., by the unrivaled methods of the Jews in transmitting perfect Hebrew manuscripts. The revivers themselves would have one uh, have no one think for an instant that they used any other manuscripts in revising the Old Testament than the Masoretic text, the only reliable Hebrew Bibles. So then, here's what we can include. The Old Testament text is settled, and all reputable Bible scholars accept what is known as the standardized Masoretic text and the brilliant scholar Philip Muro said he said there is there is but a single standard Hebrew text the Masoretic text which is recognized by both Jewish and Christian authorities as the true text of the Hebrew scripture so even today regardless of their attitude in regards to modern translations 
or the New Testament itself, all are forced to agree that the Old Testament is in an absolute settled condition in what is known as the Masoretic text. So, you know, of course, we, we have it in the English version, and we'll talk about that later on. But uh, the fact of the matter is we have assurance, and it's a settled thing that there's no, no debate, no quibbling about the Old Testament. You see, the real battleground has to do with the New Testament. This is where the battle rages today. And, and there's arguments on every hand as to what manuscripts ought to be followed in, in the many versions of the Bible today are create, has created a world of confusion. And, and, and the reason for the confusion is the fact that there are those that say, well, we ought to use these manuscripts and not those manuscripts. And so here's what we need to remember. Basically, all of the versions, regardless of what it is, it comes from one of two streams of manuscripts. Later on, maybe next week, several years ago, I drew up a little picture of two streams and, and, and gave you many of the names that I'll mention tonight. And I've got all of that on one page and uh, and I w- was going to do that tonight, but uh, the the one copy that I that I found was one that went through the flood, and not too good a condition, and, and I'm pretty certain in my files I have some clean copies, and uh, I'll make uh, make some copies of that and give it to you. You can fold it up, carry it in your Bible, and it'll help you to understand what I'm talking about right now. So basically, all of the versions come from one of two different streams of the New Testament. One stream carries what is known as the Texas Receptus. Now, that's, that's the manuscripts that the King James Version comes from. The Texas Receptus, or it's called the Received Text. It's the one that, you know, for years and years and years was acknowledged, you know, as... Uh, justifiably the very best text that we had. The second stream is based on older but fewer and inferior manuscripts. And it's from this stream that nearly all of the modern versions have come from. And the argument is this, that in, in whether it's the NIV or whatever, that we have a better translation because of the fact that we translated from older manuscripts. But listen, older isn't necessarily better. There were a lot of corrupt manuscripts that were destroyed and a lot that were not used because they were recognized to be inferior. There were mistakes in them and so forth. And so even back in 1611, during the time of the King James uh, translation, they recognized the fact that there are some manuscripts that we dare not use because they're corrupt. They're no good. They're our heirs. And so they used the Texas Receptus. So that is no valid argument when they say, well, we're using... uh, the older text, because older isn't necessarily better. Now, before we discuss the difference in those two streams of manuscripts, tonight I just want, I want to briefly try to trace the various translations and versions. 
And we go all the way back originally with the Greek text because the New Testament was written in Greek. And again, I remind you, we do not have any of the original manuscripts, but we, again, can rest assured that the originals were carefully copied and preserved throughout the ages. Norman Geisler and William Nix wrote a book entitled From God to Us. And they said, quote, The first century church was not naive in its acceptance of inspired writings. Jesus had warned of false prophets and deceivers coming in his name. Paul exhorted the Thessalonians not to accept erroneous teachings from any letter pretending to be from him. John urged the believers, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. They were... Um, there were incorrect and false teachings about Christ circulating in the first century. Hence, the New Testament church had to be discriminating from the very beginning. Any books received without apostolic signature, that's based on Second Thessalonians 3.17, were to be refused. The fact that books were read, quoted, collected, and circulated within the New Testament church gives assurance that they were received as prophetic or divinely inspired from the very beginning. Maybe you'll remember that last week I talked about the fact that the Bible speaks of the church as being the pillar and ground of the truth. Just as ancient Israel was the custodian of the ancient manuscripts that make up the Old Testament, the New Testament church was to be the custodian, the protector of the New Testament. So originally we had the Word of God in the Greek language, by the apostles given to the churches. Well, next, after the original, come the copies of the originals. You know, and, and because in the beginning there was no church that possessed all of the apostolic letters. You know, the church at Corinth, they had their letters. The church at Philippi had its letter. But no one church had all of the letters originally. So they made copies of these letters and circulated the, the copies among the churches. And naturally, as they were collected, consequently, eventually, you have the entirety of what we know as the New Testament. So now we have copies of the originals. Well, then it goes beyond that. It goes to copies of the copies. Because in time, the original copies were worn away. You know, you know, could be destroyed in a flood, a fire, or just worn away from use. And so now... They have to make copies of copies for further distribution. Naturally, again, they took extreme care in making sure that the copies were accurate. That brings us down to the translation of the copies into different languages. And over the years, my, the Bible has, you know, been translated in many different languages, making the Word of God available to people that couldn't read the Hebrew or the Greek. I'm sure glad I don't have to be able to read Greek in order to get the Word of God. I'm so glad that we have it in the English language. 
And uh, some of these translations, you know, are extremely good, while others were before quality. And we're not going to discuss all of the details of each individual translation. You can do all of that research if you want to. But I just want to give you a list of the more famous translations. First of all, of the translations, the very first one that must be mentioned is what is known as the Septuagint. And that was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The word Septuagint means 70. And it was called that because 70 scholars, learned Jews from Alexander, Alexandria, translated it uh, uh, into the Greek, out of the Hebrew. And uh, so these 70 scholars doing that work made the Old Testament available to people that spoke Greek that did not speak Hebrew. Then there were the, the Aramic translations. From that came the Latin versions. There was the Old Latin and then there was the Latin Vulgate that was done by a man by the name of Jerome. And the New Testament portion was simply a revision of the old Latin text. But our main concern has to do with the English translations. And there are some that are noteworthy that we dare not make any study, you know, of the development of the Bible without mentioning these the first one was the Wycliffe translation. This was in 1380. Up until this point in time, there was no complete Bible in the English language. What, what a shame that would be to think about not having the Bible in your language. And, and that's the way it was. No complete Bible in the English language. And so Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, decided that he would translate the Bible into the English language. But he did so from the Latin Vulgate into the English. In other words, he did not base his translation on the Greek text, that is the Textus Receptus that we mentioned earlier on which the King James Version is based. And the Old Testament Version was completed after his death uh, by another man. And then in 1526, Tyndall, William Tyndall, uh, gave his translation. Now, it was important because, you know, in, in regards to the English-speaking people so they could have the Bible in their own language, here was a man that decided that I'm not going to use the Latin language, the copies that were over in the Latin, but I want to go back to the Greek text, the Texas Receptus, you know, and, and that that's really, that's the only safe way to make a translation, because, you know, if you're going to translation translate something out of the English, for example, into the Spanish, you're going to run into all kinds of problems, or, you know, out of, out of the Spanish into German, or whatever it is, you see, so you always have to go back to the original language, which is the Greek language and the Texas Receptus. And Tyndall was a courageous man. He was a reformer determined to get the Bible, the pure Bible, into the hands of English-speaking people. Because of persecution, he had to flee until finally, finally in 1526, the New Testament part was completed in Cologne, and then he completed the Pentateuch in 1530. Uh, 
and the book of Jonah in 1531. And finally, finally, they begin to circulate these copies of his Bible. And whenever they hit England, they were publicly burned at St. Paul's Cross by the Bishop of London. At the time, and I want you to get this, at the time of his death, when he was burned to death, here was his prayer. He said, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. God had used this man to give the English-speaking people a Bible translated out of the Greek and into their language, an accurate translation of the Bible, And when they were brought to England, they burned the Bible. So he says, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And you'll see that prayer was answered in just a little bit. After that, there was a translation called the Coverdale Translation. Miles Coverdale, he had been Tyndall's assistant. And it was basically a revision of what Tyndall had done. Then there was another another translation in 1539 called the Great Bible. It was called the Great Bible because it was huge in size. It was so huge that it was literally chained to the reading desk in churches so it could be used by those who had gathered to worship. And so big, I mean, it's not something you would carry around. I mean, can you imagine coming to church and you don't have a Bible and I don't have a Bible? We've got one Bible and we got it up here and we got it chained to that uh, communion table. You can't take it with you if you want to read it. All you can do is come up there and read it. And so uh, that became the translation that was popular with so many people. Then between 1557 and 60, there was another translation called the Geneva Bible. And it, it was done by the Reformers during the persecution by uh, Queen Mary. And it went through 140 different editions. It became the most popular version of the Bible up until that time. It was especially popular with the Puritans. And it's, it's the version that Shakespeare quoted from then there was another bible called the bishop's bible in 1568 and it was prepared during the reign of queen elizabeth by eight bishops never gained much popularity but uh, it was a translation then and, and these next two are very very important next came the reims dewey version this happened between 1582 and 1609 This is the version that was prepared by the Roman Catholics. And it was translated not from the Greek, but from the Latin Vulgate. And it was designed to counteract the English translations of the Protestants. So rather than, rather than, you know, use the Bible that the true churches were using, they said, you know, we'll make a Bible of our own. So, you know, the Catholic folks, you know, decided they'd come up with one that suit their purpose, which is exactly what they did. Well, in 1611, God answered William Tyndall's prayer because at that time, by order of King James, 54 scholars were commissioned to produce what was known as the authorized version of the Bible in the English language language. 
at first, when people began to hear about it, they resented the thought because they loved the Geneva Bible, but quickly it became the favorite Bible of the English-speaking world and has continued that way down through all of the ages. Probably next week, and next week I'll speak about the King James Version, or maybe next week I'll, I'll talk about the Texas Receptus itself that the King James Version is based on, and then we'll talk about the King James Version. And I have hanging in my office a first edition copy of one of the pages about that size that John and Diane had framed for me. I purchased it from Jewel Smith out of his collection. It's a first edition printed in 1611. I'll bring it over for you all to, uh, to get a look at maybe next week. But, um, but all through these years, that has been the standard by which churches depended upon. Well, somebody gets the idea... And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to accuse them of actually thinking it out in this manner that, you know, I could make a, I could make a lot of money if I could come up with a version of the Bible that would, you know, sell millions of copies. I, I'm not, I'm not going to accuse them of doing that, even though I suspect some of them did jump on that bandwagon, become a profitable thing. But I, I feel there are some that just made an honest mistake and, you know, they'd never been taught, they didn't know, and they thought, you know, we could make some improvements to the King James Version of the Bible. And so they come out with the Revised Version in 1885. 1901, they came out with the American Standard Version then 1946, the Revised Standard Version. 1961, the New English Bible. Then 1970, they came out with the New American Standard Bible. 1973, the New International Version, the NIV, that so many use today. And, and of course, there are, other, there are others, uh, you know, I'm, I'm certain, because they just keep rolling the printing presses and coming out with, these and um, somebody somebody has uh, let me try to put this in, in, in the context that I think maybe will make my point somebody has said that there's nearly 300 different English versions of the Bible now you know I can't confirm that but I mean that's somebody that has done some research and so you know let's say there's only 200 different versions but also, it is supposed to be a fact that there are like 3,000 different languages in the world. I didn't really know that till a few years ago. I had no idea there were that many languages. And most of them without any copy of the Bible in their language whatsoever. You know, it seems to me that we would be much better off if we would use our time and our money getting the Word of God in the language of those people that have never had access to it than spending the time and the money printing new versions when people already have the best version ever in the English language. Now... 
and that, that's why the next two lessons are going to be important because I know people are wondering, well, what's the big deal, you know, whether you use a new version or an old version? Well, let me put it like this. The new versions, as I said, are based on those fewer but older manuscripts that were known to be inferior. And it's obvious if you read the NIV and the King James Version that they contradict one another. I'll, uh, I can give you a, a entire several page article showing the differences. And so that's a documented fact. It's not something I'm making up just because I prefer the King James Version of the Bible. There are differences. They are different. They say different things. Now, both of them can't be right. That's impossible. So you're telling me, look, and if it's wrong in one place, then how can you trust it any place? And you're telling me that from 1611 up until 1973 when they come out with the NIV and everybody depended, you know, basically on the King James Version that all of a sudden now they're saying that version of the Bible is inaccurate. You can't trust it. You're going to have to go down and buy the NIV. Really? That means we had no accurate Bible in the English language for all of those years. That's nonsense. God has promised to preserve His Word, and there has not been one single generation when God somewhere in some language did not have His Word preserved. Now let me, let me sum it all up this way. Somebody wrote a book, I can't remember the author's name or, uh, or what, but I can remember reading at least part of it many, many years ago, but it was called The Battle for the Bible. And that was a good title because we are in a battle for the Bible. And there has been a war of words ever since the Garden of Eden where Satan said to Eve in chapter 3, verse 1, Yea, hath God said? Did God really say that, Eve? You see, the first thing he did was to question the Word of God. Think about that. A lot of people today have questions about the Word of God. I've got to tell you, if I had never studied this, if I wasn't a Christian, you know, and, and, and so forth, I'd be confused too. Somebody tell me, well, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. You know, I'd say, which one? How do you know which one to depend on? You know, and it bothers me whenever, you know, folks will come. And I was so glad to hear. So we had some folks here last week that were guests and they were looking for a church and we're looking for a church that used the King James Version only. And I said, well, you found it because that's exactly what we do. That's the only version of the Bible that we use. Now, that doesn't mean we hate people that use something else. It doesn't mean we don't like them. Doesn't mean we don't care about them. Doesn't mean that at all. But a lot of times people are highly offended that we will not accept their version of the Bible when they have absolutely not a clue as to what brought about their version of the Bible or why we choose the King James Version of the Bible. Some of them say, well, you know, you're making a big deal out of nothing because 
You know, they say, well, basically all of the versions are the same. <laughs> no, they're not. If they're different, they're not the same. And they are different. They say different things. Well, somebody says, well, I still like the new versions because, because it makes it easier to read. Do you know there's been a lot of research done on that, and it is now a proven fact that the King James Version is the easiest of all of the versions to read. That's not to say there are not some difficult words in it. I've been preaching over 50 years, and there's still words I can't pronounce. But, of course, I can't pronounce milk, let alone. <laughs> but anyway, it's a proven fact that the King James Version is easier to read than anything else. Now, I know, I know that messages like this are not something that's enjoyable to most people. And as I said at the beginning, it's not necessarily enjoyable to me. I, I want to get back to taking some verses of the Scripture like I did this morning, Matthew 6.33, and just digging into that. And that that's the kind of preaching I want to do. And I think that's... A, you know, the kind that, that is so helpful to us. But, but again, these are subjects that are, that are absolutely necessary for us to understand. Because if we're going to depend upon the truth, we've got to know where the truth is found. And whenever somebody hands me a version of the Bible that is clearly in conflict with what the King James says, I know automatically that I've got a problem with that. I, I, I can't trust it. So I, I'm, boy, I'm, I'm just thrilled that I can hold in my hand an accurate translation of the precious Word of God. It's not in Hebrew. It's not in Greek. But it is an accurate translation of the Hebrew and Greek. And God forbid that I ever get up here or, or anybody else and say something trying to correct what this Bible says. We don't need to correct it. We just need to preach it. Because it is what it is and it's true. Well, as I said, and, and, and I'm finished with this. Next week, I'll talk uh, probably uh, about the Texas Receptus. Why that particular Greek translation is so very, very important. Uh, I shouldn't call it a translation, that text, the Greek text. And we'll talk about the King James Version. Uh, I, 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 I'm just guessing, but I would surmise that most people, especially the younger ones, have never never read or studied or heard anything about uh, how the King James Version came to be. And it's really an interesting story. And, uh, and we'll talk about reasons for adhering to it. And then I'm going to wrap it up with one message, I think. We could talk about a lot of other things. But I, I want to speak to you in, in a few weeks, maybe about a month from now, a message entitled, Sanctified Through the Truth. Sanctified Through the Truth. 
And this is where the truth is found. And we'll look at what Jesus said in John chapter number 17 whenever we get there. So I I hope tonight something has been helpful to you. This isn't the way we ordinarily close a service, but I'm going to do it tonight at the at the risk of putting my stupidity on display. Does anybody have a question or a comment or anything related to this? Don't ask me about the mark of the beast or some nonsense like that or the name of the Antichrist. We're we're talking about the the translations of the Bible. Anyone have a Brother Rick? You made several years ago, quite a few years ago, but it really stuck with me. Was you said, okay, people that have the King James, they know it and they feel like they're comfortable using a different version because if it was a mistake, they know the King James so well that they didn't catch it. And then you made a comment what happens when your grandkids come to you with such a off the wall version of the Bible? And you're trying to counsel them, and they say, "Well, you didn't have no absolute truths in your life." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know this is the word of God, but you know, there, there's some practical reasons just so yes. you can guard your testimony. Amen. You know, just stick with it. Amen. If it led you down, Lord, stick with it. Amen. 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 I think I made a good point. I'm glad I'm glad you remembered it. <laughs> He's got a better memory than I do. I'm glad you did. Any, anybody else, any comment or anything before we go? Thank you for being here and uh, being so patient. And as I said at the very beginning, I'm, I'm, our, I'm chomping at the